This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our mini-series on the Bible, what to believe and what to leave. So at the Constructionist, we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ, and in this episode, we are examining the Bible through a clear and honest lens. Now, we do have a challenge and possibly a problem because we are ruining some of the Bible for some of you when we're talking about the old stories of the Old Testament and a few of the new, and we're giving new perspectives that may go against what you learned, maybe in Sunday school or early on in your faith journey, this might be a deconstruction process for you. So I want you to be patient. I want you to go through the journey with us as we offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we are not fabricating anything as many have, as, as many have done, especially when it comes to the Bible, some of these stories, the intentions of them, the purpose of why they were written, or in what context they were written. So our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination. So this is our thinking space. We're presenting ideas and thoughts. And tonight we're making our best attempt to explain practical theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the media social media platform that you're listening to and visit our Give page. More importantly, though, we, we want to hear from you. We want to engage with you. We believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together. And we value your feedback, questions, and ideas as we are excited to build a community around a shared exploration, what we call a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, Sherea and Jake, here we are on creation, part two, chapter two. That's where we're at. And what we're doing is we're going to compare and contrast a little bit. But really, we're, last week we went over chapter one and that creation account. And now we're going over chapter two, which is considered the second creation account. Um, and it's given in maybe a different order. Some people call this the parade order of things. But I want to be very clear about something, just introducing um, creation accounts and different perspectives. Some people try to marry science, evolution, some theories of how the world began, maybe the Big Bang Theory or, or what have you, however you think the world was uh, created or came about. A lot of people try to marry those kind of scientific principles to religion. And I would say that when we try to do that, it is a zero-sum game. There is, there is really just the inevitable is going to be conflict when we do that. Because these two 
disciplines, religion and science, really are mutually exclusive, that they do have different principles and ideas and thoughts and directions that they had. One talks about God and one talks about the creation of the material. So, so I would say first that those of us who try to take creation accounts and find or I guess slip them into the scientific journals as we see fit or take scientific journals and slip them into religious um, chronological order of things, I think that that will only get us in trouble. So if we leave them just loosely in, in both two different hands and we look at them as they are and what they are and what the purpose is of them, what they're for, I think we're going to be great. We're going to be fine if we do that. If we try to marry them together, <clears throat> it is not a non-zero-sum game. <laughs> There is, there is going to be conflict. There's going to be challenges when we do that. So if you're trying to take creation and let's say you're a, you're an, a young earth creationist and you just can't like you're just belligerent about science um, in general, I think that's just low level thinking, just to be honest. But if you're like a theistic evolutionist or you're a a gap theorist or, or you're a, a long day theorist or, or whatever it is, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take a scientific principle and kind of slip it into some religious idea. How about if I told you this? How about if I just said the two creation accounts really have nothing to do with creation? It really has nothing to do with the formation of the world. It really has not those two accounts really don't explain really anything about how the world came about, that there's a different purpose, that, that there's a different idea that's out there, that maybe it's just the function, or maybe it's just a rhythm, like the creation seven days. It just makes complete sense that that possibly could just be a rhythmic type idea that was presented, that we have six days of work, and on the seventh we rest. And that was a great illustrative example of how in slavery or in captivity that they're working all the time, but in heaven or in the garden or in creation, in perfection, there is a rhythm to things that we actually get Sabbath, we get salvation, we actually fall in the hands of God. And so, so I think that we need to look at these two stories and to be honest, other stories like tonight, Noah and the Exodus and some other things, we need to look at them from a different perspective, a completely different angle and try to not mash things together, whether it becomes science or religion, we're trying to mash together or some principles that we learn maybe um, about what kind of like creationist I can be that can marry to science. Let's just put all that aside and look at these stories for what they are. So this is what we know so far, is these creation accounts were written around the time of exile. Now, some people think that they were written pre-exile, but not that pre-exile, that there is a pre-exilic time, maybe when the kings were around, but there's some people that believe that they were written around that time Yet most scholars would say these were written around the exile. 
And between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's a language change. That's a very significant language change for the name of God. And the language change is in Genesis 1, the name of God is Elohim. Elohim means strong, mighty, authority type God. But then you have in chapter 2, you have Yahweh. And so we're going to unpack what that means tonight as we continue in our mini-series here on, well, ruining the Bible for some, but the, the Bible for what it is, what, it, what, to, what to keep, what to leave, right? what to believe and what to leave. I think what we first can believe is these were written around the time of exile, and they had a purpose and a meaning behind them that meant something very special for the people that were reading it or listening to these stories, absorbing them in their life in the context in which they lived, which was basically in captivity. So let's start with that. Let's read chapter 2, and then we're going to skip up to 316. It's just a little little egg, uh, extra for us. And so let's put it up there on the screen if we can. The heavens and the earth and all who live in them were completed. On the sixth day, oh, hang on. Can we pause and re-unpause? This is still the first account. Um, we need to go ahead to the second account, which starts in chapter 2, verse 4. So it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day the Lord God made sky and earth, before any wild plants appeared on the earth, and before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breaths into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit. And also he grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows from Eden to water the garden, and there it divides into four headwaters. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It flows around the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. That land's gold is pure, and the land also has sweet-smelling resins and gemstones. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, flowing east out of Assyria, and the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and brought them to the human to see what he would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But a helper perfect for him was nowhere to be found. So the Lord God put the human into a deep and heavy sleep and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. 
With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, This one finally is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She will be called a woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. And then let's go to 316 okay. or 315 rather. 15. Mm-hmm. So for those of you familiar with the story, this is after the snake tempts Eve to eat the fruit and she does and she shares it with Adam and they are found out. And God says, I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. <coughs> well, first, I just want to mention that <coughs> that there's different thoughts in the scripture that point there's like a signaling that we see in the scripture that point to different realities. Now with Hebrew, Hebrew is a beautiful language and Hebrew is almost written in like picture form, like an artist is drawing on a canvas. And there sometimes is multiple meanings to one word. And that those multiple meanings could all relate to one another or they sometimes don't relate to one another, that there could be different expressions or different thoughts behind the word that point to totally different meanings. But one thing that we know about the Hebrew is there's very consistent ideas that point towards, let's say, realities. So like, for example, numbers. Every time you see numbers in, in Hebrew, excuse me, I just drank some water, so I'm the clept. All right. Every time you see numbers in scripture, those point to different realities. So for example, the number 1000 or a millennia, a lot of people and theologians alike have tried to use that as a certain number of days or an exact time or a certain period of time. Every time a thousand is used in scripture, like in Revelation, you'll see that that actually was an expression of an eternal amount of time, that there was just a long time that was incomprehensible. Or the number 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel, that was a complete or a more complete number. Um, the number three. So every time that you see a trifecta of something or three beings or three people or the number three you know that that's more of a complete number so any any factor of 12 like the hundred and forty four thousand, like in revelation as well so so every time you see a number or a grouping of things you know that there's a different reality that's being spoken in hebrew but also there's other metaphors like really God the artist. So when you see God forming things or God like the potter forming this or that, you know that that's a metaphor that's speaking louder than what's really just written on the page. And so any good Hebrew person would have read that and they would have 
seen that signal. They would have recognized, oh, that means something more. So every time you see the word garden in Scripture, whether it be Old and New Testament, that that is the reestablishment or the establishment of God's people. And so Israel or the the chosen people, some people call it the chosen people or God's people or the Abrahamic people or Israel, that is God planting the garden. The garden is Israel and God becomes this planter. So we know that there's other places that God is a planter in, in scripture where there's like also in Revelation, but also in Exodus 15, that Israel is planted in a new garden, that they're re recreated in the Exodus where you see them enter into the promised land. The promised land becomes this new garden. But the, but the idea of this garden is the establishment of Israel. And so we have read a little bit from a gentleman by the name of Peter Enns. And so, Sheree, why don't you just take that little commentary and, and mm. give us more information on this idea that God, Yahweh, is the gardener or the planter of Israel. Yeah. Um, so Peter Enns' idea is that Adam in this story is representative of Israel. Um, Jake, do you have the graph thing that shows a comparison? Oh, no, not that one, but that's great too. No, I did not. Sorry. You don't? Okay. Hold one moment, please. Well, okay, here we go. So if we compare, we have Adam being created out of the dust. You have Israel being created out of slavery. You have both of them being placed into a paradise-like or garden land. They're given commands to follow. Um, and then there's this um, promise of obedience leading to life and disobedience leading to death. So the idea is that um, the narrative flow of the people of Israel follows the same narrative flow of the Genesis 2 story. So the Genesis 2 story, in comparison to the Exodus story, like Egypt was the sin mm -hmm. and Egypt was the disease, let's say, that they had to be healed from. So mm -hmm. God creating this healing safe place. It's actually Eden means in Hebrew, the delight of the Lord. So this place of delight for God's people to heal from the chaos. Now, to make sense of this all, I just wanna, I just wanna give this like idea that the story I believe was written to be a counter narrative to what they were experiencing. So if you can imagine what like, exile or captivity would be like, this becomes the counter narrative to that. And so this, this placement here of just right after <clears throat> I'm in slavery, I don't get any time off of 
work, right? Now we're now God is forming this place of healing that we so desperately need. This becomes almost like good for the soul. So if you're in captivity and you read something like this, there has to be more to life than what I'm experiencing now. And this place, this garden, this special place that um, that is being presented to me is where God heals all things. So, so Yahweh, which is the, the, the new name that's given in Genesis 2, this becomes like the, the gardener or the vine dresser where, where God becomes a more of a caretaker versus the authority power um, ruler Elohim that he is now this caring healing type former like a potter that's like gently working with with clay and so there's I guess an anticipation I guess that you would feel in this promise that <clears throat> that you would see um, I guess also illustrated in Isaiah and Isaiah 5 and and such there's lots of scriptures that talk about Jesus being like a caretaker vine dresser gardener type person so this is familiar language I guess to the Hebrew people they would have understood um, such passages and it would have been a signaling for something else what exactly they were signaling nobody really knows um, but we do know that there's something very special here for people that are inside this this captive land. So another signaling is the rivers. Jake, why don't you take the rivers and and explain I that? Because I found that very interesting. The going back to the idea of, of when it was written. I think what we're trying to say is when it was written down. <laughs> the yes, these are all oral traditions that sure probably stretch well beyond time of exile. But when they were formed together and and mished together, and that's why we I accidentally showed this chart earlier, but you had the Yahwist and the Elohist, the J and the E, and those are the different names for God. And so as you see through the Old Testament, especially the the first four books here, that what those stories are probably from different tribes, different ideas of God that were then pinned together to give a different outlook for the people that were in captivity at the time. Um, there is the idea of the four, the four rivers coming out of the garden of Eden. And <clears throat> what we know is Babylon uh, is the land, the fertile crescent in between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. Um, but this idea of the, of the four out of the flow and early, uh, early rabbis, especially in uh, around 300 CE to 500 CE, when when the Masoretes were coming out, uh, they said that the four rivers were the um, empires of the old, and so Rome was an empire, uh, Greece, Media, and the Assyrians, I believe. Correct, Shreya? Yeah, I thought it was Babylon. Sure, Babylon. Uh, Assyrians, so, 720, 722 is Assyria, and Syrians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that 
these four rivers are, are flowing out. The empires are being built from this one garden. But in the middle of where those those headwaters come together, in the in the light of God, in the very heart, that's where Israel is planted. That's so so I, I don't want to correct you in something, but maybe... <clears throat> correct me, it's fine. No, 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 I'm, I'm not going to. I just want to be very careful. When you said... When you said <clears throat> these were written down in exile or compiled in exile, but then you said they were in oral tradition long before. I want to be very careful with that philosophy because some people think that that's oral tradition all the way back to the beginning of the literalist version of creation. And that's used for that like defense. This passage of scripture whether it be formed and crafted for exile or whether it be formed and crafted for some other chaotic time and then it was borrowed forward for exile, I think that that's where it needs to sit, is this has to be some form of writing, of compilation, of literature that was written for a specific purpose that showed there was something of chaos whether it be an empire and then moving forward there has to be a counter narrative that is a godly order that we have chaos of evil the evil empire and we have the peace the tranquility the delight of the lord in the garden in i don't know i just i'm just when i heard that i was like oh that just sent a few chills up my spine because I remember, you know, like a literalist or, a, or you know, short seven-day creationist or um, young earth creationist sitting there arguing with me about, well, these were oral tradition stories that went back all the way to, you know, the beginning of time and were, you know, transmitted that way. Um, I have a hard time and with it. It probably wasn't just one or the other either, that it's an oral tradition that has been perfectly preserved or that it was um, completely thought up during the exile. Like it's probably a combination of the two. Like maybe you had an oral tradition where humanity is formed from the dust, but that's the only piece of the story that comes from oral tradition. And mm -hmm. so the um, editors during the Babylonian exile were then adding all of this other detail to this mm -hmm. humanity formed from the dust story. That seems yeah. much more likely to me. Well, and, and whether it be snippets of the story that were oral tradition <laughs> that went beyond, I think this compilation that we see, like the one that's in front of us, you know, in current form, um, as much, I mean, it's probably not even the same as it was back then anyway. Um, I'm sure that there was a few words added and dropped and whatever. But I just I just want to make sure that are we in agreement that this was for that purpose? I mean, we can't say what it's for. We don't really know. We can conjecture. Well, yeah, okay. It. Are we, are we in agreement that our best guess is that's what it's for? Talking about the exile experience, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I can sit with that, and I also can sit with the preservation of, of ancient stories. Okay, <clears throat> maybe I should word that differently. Are we in agreement that, that our best guess, this is for the narrative that there's chaos, but then there's also godly delight that awaits or that is soon to be? Like the chaos is some form of worldly struggle and then this is the delight that is God's gift. I think yeah. we see that in other places more than here. Okay. Definitely okay. see it with the first creation story. And when we talk about Noah, we see it there too. Right. Right. So it's a recurring theme for sure. I find it a little bit harder to pin chaos onto this story. Hmm. Well, Brueggemann, Walter think, Brueggemann pins chaos on this story hard, which is interesting. Go ahead, Jake. What? Were you putting the stories together in the first and second? Is that what you're talking about? Or is this no, I'm just talking about the second. Chaos? I'm just talking about the second. Hmm. Mm. I... I'm careful with redemptive pieces, especially with the Old Testament, because of what we've done with them. Mm. And we'll talk about that later on with Genesis right. 3. And so I think chaos disorder, I think disorder and chaos can, can be a, but it has to come back into order. Maybe that's, that's the phrase mm -hmm. I would, I would use. Okay. Well, I, I think that I, I'm a little stronger in the camp that this is an exilic experience. I probably would sit there harder than what I'm hearing, which uh, I, I don't oh. know if I'm, I don't know what, go ahead. It's cause we haven't gotten there yet in our conversation. If we're talking about being kicked out of the garden as exile, I'm on board. <laughs> but we haven't okay. reached that point in the story yet in our discussion. Well, I guess I guess in my head it's all, you know, a part of the 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 bigger narrative because right. they get kicked out of the garden, which to me, if God is the gardener and Eden is the delight of the Lord and the garden is mm -hmm. uh Israel, if that's the metaphor, then kicking, being kicked out of that, it's like I'm being kicked out of this promised land that I see fast forward in Exodus 15, that we see this promised land that's given, I think it's Exodus 15, where, where you know, they enter into this new garden of the land of milk and honey. So then God becomes the healer again from the disease of Egypt right through the water again so so i just see the metaphor of these rivers being salvation i see the metaphor of well, I think the rivers excuse me that yeah pull away the pull away israel right and i see i see being kicked out of the garden as the exile experience but i see this garden scene as something that is like an enactment of maybe possibly 
um, worship for them, that this might be a preliminary form of literary like expression of worship mm -hmm. that they're in this chaos, but they don't have any kind of temple practices at this point they, that we know of really, they don't have any kind of formed gatherings at, you know, for prayers or anything like that. Maybe I have no idea, but what I do know is that possibly that this is a, this is a construct of maybe the view of what's inside the tabernacle, the temple. It's good. But we don't have to be in agreement on that. I mean, we are not in 100% agreement on everything. I mean, it, was it written in was it compiled in exile? I totally think so. And it was about their exilic experience. That would be the purpose of writing. Is that what you're is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but it's it's too far of a guess for me like conjecture to say that these were oral tradition stories that harken back, you know, thousands I mean, of that, years prior. I would not say thousands of years. I think that's wrong. But the reason that that is being said is because of the name for God. That there would be, if it was, if it was a single writer, a single tradition, it would have the same name for God throughout the right. entire text. Right. And those little nuances is what breaks up the idea that there's different traditions getting mashed together in, in the, in the Pentateuch. Totally. But that shows me different traditions. It doesn't necessarily, and different emphases, it doesn't necessarily prove to me that it goes back maybe too far that we're talking, you know, millennia before this there were still oral traditions about and and we don't have to like go back and forth on that all night long it's just i'm well, just trying to like i'm just trying to like unpack something that you said that kind of ran chills up my spine and went uh-oh <laughs> uh-oh red flag is jake a literalist <laughs> yes no you're not <laughs> all right genesis three sixteen. Sharia, let's read that again and okay. yes. 15, Genesis 3, 15. All right, Genesis 3, 15. Okay. So to recap, this is after the snake tempts Eve to eat the fruit. She eats it. She shares with Adam. They realize what they've done. God comes looking for them. God finds them and the snake and is addressing the snake here when he says, I will put contempt between you and the, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. Hmm. So what do you think of this? I can start. This was called the, well, big word, it's the Proto-Evangelium. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that that good news is shared. Um, that is a very, I, I wish I would did a little more research on when this started. That is a newer theology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's the idea of Christophanies or like moments that mm -hmm. Christ pops up in the Old Testament. Um, 
hovering over the waters, the one of the angels uh, that visits Lot. Um, I wish I had some more on, on hand, but I just know of those two specifically. That we look into the Old Testament and we look we look for where Jesus is at. And is I think a very bad misuse of the text. That the text should stand alone and not have our anachronism moving back into the Old Testament trying to pull forward and pull out what we wanted to say. <laughs> Trey, do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so the idea of the Proto-Evangelion, it, the way I was taught it is that this is the very first expression of the gospel that we see in the Bible, um, which is exactly what Jake is talking about, taking something from another time and trying to smash it into the Old Testament because we like the theology better. The thin red line, they call that, looking for. Mm -hmm. Now, there's there's things that you can look for metaphorically. I think I want to do that for a little bit with this scripture. Let's put that scripture back up and let's look at uh, 3.14. Go back to 14. Mm -hmm. Right there. The Lord said to the snake. Because you did this, so the snake. So if this is Israel, and the snake means something as well, right? Then maybe the snake is like the. What do you think the snake is? Before I say I what a, I think the snake is, I have a thought. I don't. Okay. It just came from my brain, and I could be wrong. Okay. Um, but I'm wondering about if there's a connection between the snake and the dragon. Um, because we see dragons show up later, if this yeah. is a commonly used metaphor, um, because the dragon is a metaphor for Babylon. Right. I think the snake is the nations, the cursed nations that uh, possibly was alluded to before um, what Jake was saying. But you have these nations that are like, that are cursed. If you look there, if I just read on, because you did this, you are the one cursed out of all the farm animals, out of all the wild animals. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat every day of your life. I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. Keep going. So if I continue to read, to the woman, he said, I will make your pregnancy very painful. In the pain, you will bear children. You will deserve your, d desire your husband, but he will rule over you. Still a metaphor of like the nations, right? To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree that I commanded, you will not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles, here's more of the curse of the nations, will grow for you even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the fertile land since from it you were taken. You are soil. To the soil you will return. So now go up to chapter 4. 
and now look at 11, verse 11. Oops, Genesis 4, 11. Right there. You are now cursed. The Lord said, what, what did you do? The voice of your brother's blood is crying for me from the ground. This is the, this is the brother's story. You are now cursed from the ground that opened its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. When you farm the fertile land, it will no longer grow anything for you, and you will become a roving nomad on the earth. Go to chapter 9, verse 25. He said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest servant he will be for his brothers. So I see that, I see that this story, and, and if the theory that we're presenting is this is about Yahweh and the healing aspect of Yahweh, and I'll say redemptive piece of Yahweh, if I can be so bold. And to say that Eden is God's delight. And there's this is the counter narrative to um, the evil chaos that is they are being, uh, that they are experiencing in, in exile. When I look at these verses and this proto evangelion verse that is seen as this signature verse. One of my Old Testament professors out of Pepperdine, who was an amazing person, said, all this verse means is something is against something. So if you, if you put up 315 again, there's no like Christ message here. There's no, there's no secret cross, the blood of Christ hidden within Genesis 315. But I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. What I see there is the nations are under this curse. They are the cursed nations. They're the evil chaos. And now Israel is being presented in such a fashion like in a very poetic fashion, but an artistic fashion as an instrument of Yahweh into the world. That there's like this purpose that they have that they don't see that they have, that they might have lost, that they possibly could regain, that they actually are people, human beings, and that God has a reason for their um, existence. So maybe this whole passage in in genesis 2 could be a could you say a theology of purpose or a theology of like people maybe bringing healing to the world that israel is being called to bring about this garden again or this place of delight of the lord again into the world i mean that's that's possibly Maybe it's too vocational, but it, it's possibly a, a theory that I have about Genesis 2. Any thoughts on what I just said about that? I could see us getting there in some of the later chapters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think that definitely shows up um, 
like in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, like once the law is given, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't see it explicitly here. Um, I think it could be a theme that is that is brewing, but we don't have a fully fledged vision of that yet. Right. We also have to be careful of Zionism. Mm-hmm. True. Not saying that Israel is is the only <laughs> only people, right? Yeah, or like the preservation of it is or when Israel's mm-hmm. established and it's ushering in the next kingdom of God or. Um, well, and the, the language of establishing order over the chaotic evil nations or whatever feels a little bit law and ordery in a way that I don't like. Hmm. Maybe that's why. So how could you leave. rephrase that into more of a more compassionate, empathetic, loving your neighbor like that's the purpose of the constructionist so i i mean instead of instead of order over chaos like kind of a domineering force what would be a new theology that could be stated for for that if i think about um the idea of the garden it's a um a place of cooperation um, that things are growing together. And um, I mean, that's how ecosystems work. Um, it, it's a web of life. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a better metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's one of cooperation and shared prosperity. Now, it's really hard. I guess it would be really hard to, I don't want to say soften the message, but be more collaborative when Babylon is, you know, hearkening yeah. to dragons and snakes. <laughs> it's like, are, are we supposed to work in tandem with Babylon? Right. Or but that's like... also a question of power. Because in that first right. idea, if Israel is bringing order to chaos, Israel yeah. is the one in power. Um, but is it through power or is it through influence? Like, I think you got to be careful of power is not just violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean. Uh, well, I guess you carry forward dominance. Violence. Right. It's like where where would Israel's um, where would their rapport come from? I think that if you carry forward the metaphor of God, that that if Israel has a special mission, vocation, that we do see later on, that we do see in other chapters, um, uh, I was just say, I'm saying that in light of the whole big meta narrative, um, that. The meta narrative that could all have been created in exile or compiled in exile, where it possibly is the only document that helped them to survive and kept them going, is to have these stories, is to have these life giving stories. So if you carry forward the gardener into now, Israel is a gardener, a planter. 
um, or they are the, you know, seed bearers, or they're the ones that are planting seeds, then I guess you could say that it's not an issue of power or, or holding dominance over. I guess that's what it became, but it's not about holding dominance. It's about planting life, even mm -hmm. in like a chaotic ideas to show a sense of godly peace and and delight within chaos versus dominance or trying to win because that's going to lose i i think the idea of that we're going to get into later we won't get later but is later in the text is light on the hill Mm -hmm. And so as, as there's ordering of from chaos that other nations would look to Israel for that. Mm. I think that was, I, I think that's one of the author's intents is to, is to have Israel go back to their first way of being. Um, when there was a disruption of power, I think as, as Shreya was saying, it's not, not to the assertion of power. Um, but like with the the time of the judges, we go back to the time of the judges, where, mm -hmm. and we go back to the idea of 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 jubilee, where all land is is reset and all wealth is reset, where no one has has anything more than the other person. Then then we get the order from chaos. Let's camp on that power thing that Sharia said, because she did do say something in the pre-work that there is some kind of power theme here because we have this knowledge, we have the tree, oh. we have mm -hmm. we have some very power symbols mm -hmm. as well with that are running through this that we haven't mentioned yet. Let's just conclude our talk with that because I think that's an important thread because i think that that carries into today that that we we have symbols of power within scripture but we misuse them or we're misguided by them um because of our misuse of scripture sounds like you're so with the tr tree of knowledge of good and evil you're it sounds like you're talking about the idea that knowledge is power or, or uh, the fear of knowledge as well. We also have the mm -hmm. fear of knowledge, which is the opposite. So go ahead. Like it, you were saying some things in the pre-work before our mm -hmm. episode that I think are important to bring to the table. Yeah, I think um, knowledge has kind of been demonized in Christian culture. Um, and I suspect that it comes from this story that... Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that was a sin. Therefore, gaining more knowledge is a sin. Um, and yeah. consequently, the intellectual life of the church has been lacking for a while. A long while. <laughs> well, I think the whole metaphor of that is sin. And even the pursuit of that could mm -hmm. possibly be sin. Or even the thought of wanting that is possibly sin. So, so hence the big, you know, debacle of Christianity and 
education or Christianity and higher education yeah. rather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. You're allowed to learn things, but only if you come to the pre-subscribed conclusions. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Another power issue is gender that I see in this that we've misused. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a challenge that, you know, the men will rule over and, and if, you know, we just relate that to the nations, that this is the curse of the nations, then that theology is, is flatlined at that point. But people have used this scripture to, to definitely perpetuate complementarianism and such. Um, in their but modern is, day theology, which is funny because only in the curse does it say that men will have power over women. <laughs> right, right. And well, and I think there might be something um, with the idea that Eve was created from Adam's rib, um, but rib isn't a great translation of the word there. Right. It should be more like side, right. side, yeah. Um, yeah. which is a much more equal position. Um, but that's if you take this as a real creation story. See, just to be clear, is again, you have to take this as a real creation story or a, excuse me, a literal historical creation story. Well, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the Greek soulmates myth. Mm -hmm. Do you know mm -hmm. that one? I, um, I know what you're talking about, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so the idea that um, humans were originally created to have, what, two heads and four arms and eight legs or something like that. We were attached, right. At, right. like Siamese twins, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And then I don't remember why humans were then separated mm -hmm. into our current form, um, but humans were, and then that's the idea of soulmates, if you find your other half. Mm. Um, but... And the the creation of Eve out of Adam's side, I think, sounds an awful lot like that, which mm -hmm. doesn't have to be taken literally in the same way we don't take the Greek myth literally. Right. Um, right. There are many Christian traditions that teach that men have one less rib than women. I know. Mm -hmm. and that is not true. <laughs> um <laughs> I, yes, but whole whole curriculums are based on that men oh, have yeah. less rib. Because we're rib. afraid of actual knowledge. Mm -hmm. If you just count the ribs, they're the same. Right. Uh, well, I, the helpmate comes out of that section. Mm -hmm. A mm -hmm. helper, that's your mate. And so it's, it's someone that help then becomes the help. Um, right. How else would you say it? Mm -hmm. Slave. Of, yeah. That's, that's how you'd say, say that. Yeah. And so instead of instead of what it really was supposed to be is, is someone working alongside of. Yeah. Well, and I also think that there's there's challenges with probably probably this overarching theme that a literalist would have is the created order. Whenever you hear, well, that's a part of the created order. Usually they're talking about gender equality or inequalities, mm -hmm. or they say equal, but different. 
And so they'll say that, that they're equal but different, that we're supposed to serve different roles. And so this the roles of men and women are different based on the created order. With all of these things that we're talking about, um, whether it be the fear of knowledge or knowledge is a sin, whether it be gender order or roles, whether it be power within you know, these, these metaphors that were, you have to be a, um, a, a story literalist. You have to be a creation literalist in order to, you know, come to these conclusions. If you believe that the garden is Israel and all things are flowing out of that kind of like story metaphor narrative, then, then those don't even apply to the story, which I don't think that they do. Uh, because I believe that the story is something much different than uh, uh, what has been perpetuated for a long time. Yeah. Any other thoughts that we can conclude this with? So in the end of, in the end of the charge of the order of creation, mm -hmm. um, God says to have dominion over, oh. over the land. Another power play. <laughs> um, but if you take what it was, the original intent of the word, I believe, was this idea of be, being a gardener, a gardener, a skillful mastery mm -hmm. of the land. That's what that's what. What, dominion what verse is that again? At the end of the story, do you have a verse for me? No. I was just going to look it up, but that's okay. If you if you tell me the verse, I can I can put it in real quick. No, but keep talking. Yeah, we have taken that as a violent dominion that mm. will take over, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, um, instead of this loving care. Mm. And if you look, take the passage that the promised land is is Eden. Israel and that the people are Adam. Mm -hmm. You run with that metaphor. Then the skillful mastery becomes their relationship with other people. It's mm. good. I like that one. It's one twenty six and two five. Uh, That's why it wasn't part of this story. <laughs> well, it's two, isn't it two five as well? Uh, 126 is not what that says. Probably 25. It's, I'm sorry. You're fine. It's not 25. Mm, okay. I looked up something wrong. Apologize. I mean, kind of. Before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field crops grew, um, because there was still no human being to do the farming. It's, it's 128. This is 128. 128. Sorry. Uh, it says, what fill does 128 the say? fill the earth and master it. Hmm. Okay. I don't, I mean, gosh, in order for, to, to, the language is hard to say anything else. What lane, what do you mean the language? Unpack that for me. Um, 
Mastery sounds like a power overword. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm... It's okay if we have to look something up to be able to answer the question. Yeah. So, so the original text is subdue it with dominion. Hmm. Okay. I think. Um. Sorry, I was just. There we go. <laughs> wow, we've gotten deep tonight. Um. <laughs> how we care for it shows our mastery of it, not how much we control it. Yeah, mastery often describes like a craft. It describes and you don't craft. craft something by aggressing at it. That's a good one. Well, Skilled. I also wonder, because I did learn this a long time ago, that the idea of dominion so the person being in charge of something, right? That thing that they have been given is either purchased or it's been given. And in this case, it was given. So if this was given as a gift, this place, this, this promised land, if we're talking about Israel, that this actually means that they're to be the beneficiaries of it that if they're to have dominion over it, they're to be the beneficiaries of the land of milk and honey. They're to be the beneficiaries of the garden. They're to be the beneficiaries mm -hmm. of the earth. And so if you think about it in that way, um, like royalty is a, is a divine inheritance, right? It's like a genetic inheritance where you just become a royal because you were born a royal right? So as a royal is a beneficiary of the crown, right? That we are the, the beneficiaries of this earth, of this promised garden. And so to have dominion over that means that I'm the caretaker of it. I'm the preserve the promise. I'm to preserve the, the land. I'm to preserve it, not take it not use it i'm the beneficiary of it i can use it but not use it up because there's another person coming along called my son or daughter that is going to be the beneficiary of it because of my divine royal inheritance so i, I learned that actually a long time ago that that the, the idea of dominion means to manage but there also is this illusion that we are beneficiaries of something and if, and so, if you mismanage what you're given there's yeah. no more benefit there's absolutely no more benefit to give to the next generation the next inheritors the beneficiaries all right let's conclude with that that was a lot so <laughs> um uh, thanks for being patient with us, all of us, and we appreciate the time spent. Shreya, thank you. Jake, thank you for the time spent in Genesis 2.
and also 316 and all over the map, it seemed like tonight. So with that, um, we really appreciate all of our listeners. And if you want to interact with us, go to the social media platform and you can make comments and engage with, uh, engage with us there. You can go to our website at ResonateCC.com. Um, or resonatelife.org, resonatelife.org. You can go to our website and check us out there. All right, with that, good night, everybody.